Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell, lead pastor at James River Church. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. We're in a series that we've entitled Power Today from the book of Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13. So we're going to jump right into it, and as we start chapter 13, I want to make three observations that will help us to kind of get our mind on track. First of all, Acts 13 marks a significant transition in the book of Acts. The first 12 chapters of the book of Acts center on one of Jesus' disciples, a man named Peter. And Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. He's filled with the Spirit. 3,000 people are saved and baptized. Peter causes the lame man who's been lame from birth. 40 years he was lame. He heals him. You come to Acts chapter 5. Peter is so used in healing that people are laying people in the street so that when his shadow goes by, they're being healed in Jesus' name. God is doing amazing things with Peter all through the first 12 chapters. We saw in Acts chapter 9, he heals Aeneas, who's been uh, paralyzed for eight years. He heals Tabitha, who was dead. He raises her back to life. He goes to Cornelius' house. He preaches, and as he preaches, the Spirit is poured out on Gentiles. In chapter 12, he's arrested, and an angel comes and delivers him. It's all about Peter. And then you get to chapter 13, and the Spirit of God shifts our focus to a man by the name of Paul, the Apostle Paul the one who will write a third of the New Testament. And we begin to follow him as as God sends him now throughout Asia Minor and and into Europe, and he preaches the gospel. And, And from Acts 13 through Acts 28, that's what it's about. It's about Paul and his ministry. So there's a major transition that happens here. Number two, before the church could reach the world, it had to grow in maturity and strength. You know, it takes a long time for a church to become a solid church. You can start a church. You can have a lot of people attending the church, but it takes time for the Lord by the Holy Spirit to knit them together. It takes time for people to mature in their understanding of what God has called them to do and their actual doing of it. So you have the church in Jerusalem, and and it grew for seven years before people were sent out. The church at Antioch, it took it time to mature. And so what we read about in Acts chapter 11 and what we're reading about in Acts chapter 13, most scholars say five years passed. Five years of Paul and Barnabas and the others teaching that church. Five years of prayer meetings. Five years of waiting on God. Five years of growing in their understanding of the gospel. And now they're ready to send people out. So third thing I want you to notice as you come to Acts chapter 13, you see, once again, it's the Holy Spirit who is the one who empowers and directs the church. In verse 2 of Acts 13, look at this. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, and the Holy Spirit called. If you want to hear the voice of the Spirit, be in the presence of the Spirit. You want to hear the voice of the Spirit, seek 
him. Seek the presence of the Lord. Fast and pray. This is why the prayer meeting is so important. This is why the 21 days of fasting and prayer is so important, because it opens us up to hear the voice of God. And the Holy Spirit was leading and directing and moving in that church. That's a mark of a spirit-controlled church, when the Spirit of God is at work in power in that church. It's the second thing that we notice in verse 4. The two of them were sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. So they're sent out. And then you get to verse 9. Paul, who was also Saul, who was called Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit talks to people. The Holy Spirit sends people. The Holy Spirit fills people. And that is the pattern in the book of Acts. We take it a step further. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit has, he's talking to you. He spoke to you. That's how you got saved. You ended up giving your heart to Jesus, rededicating your life. That was the prompting, the leading, the working of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is calling you. Always the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is saying, go. Go, go, go talk to them. Go share Christ with them. Go pray for them. The Holy Spirit is speaking to every single one of us. He's speaking today. He's going to be speaking tomorrow. He's going to be speaking on Tuesday. And he's always going to be calling us to go. He's always going to be sending us, pointing us in a direction to specific people at specific places. It may seem random to us, but it's not to him. He's been working. He's been, he's been touching their heart. You're not the first person to talk to them. Hopefully when you talk to them, they come to know Christ. And then the Holy Spirit is filling people full of the Holy Ghost and power. We're seeing that like never before. I pray if you've not been filled with the Spirit that, that today's the day or this week's the week for you to receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Now as we come to Acts 13 with that kind of as a backdrop. I want you to notice two things. We're going to see how the Spirit of God empowers people and what that looks like in a church. And we're also going to see how Satan opposes God's work. So first of all, the Spirit empowers. And I want to give you just some indicators of what it looks like when the Spirit of God is at work in a church. One of the first things you notice in Acts chapter 13 is the Spirit empowers by creating diversity. Now, when we hear the word diversity, we often think of racial diversity, and that is certainly a part of diversity. That God loves all people, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of the country they come from, regardless of their culture, God loves people, and the gospel is for everyone. And if the gospel is for everyone and God loves everyone, then there should be everyone in the church, right? People from every tongue and every kindred and every nation. That's what heaven's going to be like. It's going to be very diverse in heaven. All nations represented because God has created the nations and the people who are a part of those nations. So the church should have diversity. But diversity isn't just limited to racial diversity, though that's an important aspect of diversity. The, the church also has a diversity of gifts. 
Some have a teaching gift. Some have a, ter- a serving gift. Some have a leading gift. Some have a helping gift. Some have a prophetic gift. Some have a healing gift. All kinds of gifts in the church. There's also diversity in terms of socioeconomic status. Some are, are very wealthy, some not so wealthy. Some are very well educated, some not as well educated. The church is designed to have everyone together because the common denominator is our faith in Jesus, which makes us all one, right? Now, that's right, clap, because that's, that's good. Acts 13, verse 1, you see this. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, diversity of gifts. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. He's the one who, who had John the Baptist beheaded. And Saul. So right away, you get this idea that there's a diversity of, of people. You have Jews and you have Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jewish people. You've got Barnabas, and here's Barnabas. He's not only Jewish, he's from the priestly tribe of Levi. And here's Barnabas, and he's an encourager, and he's a capable teacher, and he's full of the Holy Spirit. And then you have Simeon, called Niger. Niger means black. Simeon, who was called black. Most people believe he's from Africa. So he is an African. Some people believe he's from Cyrene, which would be the area of Libya in in North Africa. Very possibly, Simeon and Simon are variations of the same name, kind of like if you spell John, J-O-H-N, or J-O-N. Either one is John. Simeon could be Simon, and if he's from Cyrene, he may actually be the one who carried Jesus' cross in Mark's gospel, Simon of Cyrene. A lot of scholars believe that's who that is. Lucius of Cyrene, another African. Menaean, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. So he is, a, he is a foster brother of Herod. So he grew up in the palace. He has a lot of political connections. He's very well connected socially, raised with royalty. And then you have Paul, and probably of all of these individuals, Probably the most intellectually brilliant of all of them. Certainly theologically, he had one of the finest educations Judaism could give a person. All of them empowered by the Spirit and a reflection of the diversity of a healthy church. The second thing I want you to notice. A Spirit-empowered church listens to the Holy Spirit. Look at it in verse 2 while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, listen, the Holy Spirit is speaking. He's speaking right now. Anytime we're gathered together, you can be sure of it. He is speaking in this place. Sometimes we have very clear evidence of it uh, in the words of knowledge. That's the Holy Spirit speaking through somebody. He can speak through the word of God as it's taught. He can speak as we're singing songs of worship and praise while they were worshiping, the Holy Spirit said. This is why you don't want to show up late and miss the worship. You want to hear what God has to say to you, and God may be wanting to say it through the worship. 
He may want to speak to your heart. He may want to tell you to go lay hands on somebody and see them healed. You might see somebody standing in the aisle and feel called to go pray for them, and you'll be the one who, when you pray, God will use to bring healing to their life. He may want to talk to you about your business. He may want to talk to you about your marriage. He may want to talk to you about a coworker or, or a, a son or a daughter. Who knows what he wants to say? The Holy Spirit has a lot to say, let me tell you that. Problem isn't, is he talking? The issue is, are we listening? And the surest way to hear him is to be in the presence of the Lord, and especially with the company of other believers. He said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the Holy Spirit's calling people. I believe this. I believe that when he called Saul and Barnabas, it was before this actual moment. That he's saying, set them apart for the work to which I have called them. They were already sensing the calling of God. But what I find so interesting is, though they know the calling of God, they are going to wait on the Lord to speak to the church so that there will be unity as they go out. And people won't be saying, why did Saul and Barnabas leave? Where did they go? Well, I don't know. They just left. Well, somebody told me they got a ministry going on. Oh, they started another ministry. Yeah, I mean, they're not going to do that. They understand, and this, I think, is a real important thing for us in our Western Christianity to think through because we have individualized our Christianity and our service of Christ, I think, to a dangerous degree where we only think about ourselves, We don't think about the community of believers. We only think about what God has called us to do and what we want to do and where we're going and how we're going to get there. And it's like, see y'all later. Paul and Barnabas are waiting for God to speak to the church. They are, in a very real sense, submitting themselves both to the Holy Spirit and to the leadership of the church, though they themselves are leaders. And it has great purpose. You say, what would be the purpose? Well, watch what happens in Acts chapter 13 and verse 3. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. I want to suggest to you this is a very significant, spiritually significant moment in their life. Because what's going to happen to them in that moment is God is going to set his hand on them as the church leadership sets their hand on them, God is going to set his hand on them. You say, well, where are you getting at? It doesn't say that in the verse. Well, we know it from other places in the New Testament, like 1 Timothy chapter 4. Watch this. Do not neglect, this is Paul writing to Timothy, your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message, when? When the body of elders laid their hands on you. You see, what can happen in that moment as the church is commissioning and maybe very well ordaining them to ministry? In that moment, God speaks prophetically through the leader, and as a result, there is an impartation of a grace and a gift from the Holy Spirit on their life that was not there before. I would suggest to you that very likely something of that happens certainly in the life of the Apostle Paul because prior to chapter 13, we don't see him doing any miracles. 
And he's been serving Christ now for 13 years. I'm not saying he didn't do any. We're just getting ready to see him do a whole bunch. So if he was doing some, all of a sudden, that laying on of hands, that commissioning is going to bring about a prophetic gift on his life that's going to result in him seeing God use him in a whole different way at a whole nother level that's going to open doors that, hey, he's been going everywhere preaching, but all of a sudden, God is going to change things for him. Not only the gifting that's going to come on his life, but the direction that he's going to experience as the Holy Spirit sends him out. All that to say this, listen, praise God for what he's doing in your life, but I would suggest that there is a value in allowing the church to be a part of that. That's what they did, and it made a massive difference. Number three, a Spirit-empowered church is directed by the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. I think this is very significant. What that's telling us is they're not just doing what they want to do. They're doing what God wants them to do. I want to ask you this question. In your service of Christ, you're doing what you want to do? You want to, are you doing what God wants you to do? Who's guiding and directing your steps? Who is, who is the one who's dictating where you go and what you do and how you serve Christ? I think this is a really important issue because all of us, I think, can get ideas of how we want to serve Christ. But may I just suggest to you that often our ideas are way smaller than God's ideas. I mean, you're going to watch this in the life of the Apostle Paul. He's going to go all over Asia Minor because he's from Asia Minor. He's got a heart for Asia Minor. What's on his heart? Asia Minor. What's on God's heart? Rome and the Roman Empire. We think too small if we only think with our own mind rather than letting the Spirit of God energize us. They were sent by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was saying, this is where I want you to go. And when I send you, along with my sending of you, there will be a grace to open doors for you that you cannot begin to imagine. On this trip, they're going to be sitting in front of the governor of the island of Cyprus. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the one who is sending them. Look at it. Acts chapter 13, verse 4. So the two of them sent their sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Let me show you a little map here so you get a sense of what we're talking about. So Jerusalem is down here. Here's Antioch. It's inland. They go down to Seleucia, which is where the port is for them to take off. You can make about a 100-mile journey over to Cyprus across the water. They're going to come to Salamis, and then they're going to go overland to Paphos, the capital of the area. There's still ruins today from Paphos. They're going to go from there. When you get to verse 13, they're going to go to Perga in Pamphylia, which is a part of Asia Minor. So 100 miles there, about 110 miles there, and then they're going to sail by ship up there. They start their journey 
in the synagogue, back to verse 5. They're going to the Jewish synagogue. Why are they doing that? Because Paul will say in Romans, the gospel is to the Jew first. Salvation came from the Jewish people. They should have the right to hear it first. And then as well, what Paul does in the synagogue, there's going to be God-fearers. These are not proselytes or converts to Judaism, but they're Gentile, they're non-Jewish people who are interested in the God of the Jewish people. And as they're there, they're learning about, about the true God, and they're getting acquainted with Jewish people, and Paul, when he's preaching there, would have the opportunity to meet them, which would open the door to other Gentiles in the community. And they've got John Mark there as their helper. John Mark is a cousin of Barnabas. We know that from Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10. So it's Paul, it's Barnabas, and it's John Mark. The Spirit's empowering them, and they're on a journey. And as the Spirit is empowering them and sending them, Satan is opposing them. We have to take it as a given in life that whenever we purpose Paul says, so I find this law at work. When I purpose to do good, evil is right there with me. It's, it's, it's just part of the way it is. Nobody lives a life free of the attack of the enemy. And if, and if he's not challenging you or attacking you, then maybe it's because he likes you. Which would be a cause for real concern. But he's a... He's a always on the attack. And when he's attacking, sometimes he's going to do things externally to oppose you. Sometimes he's going to do things internally. So let's look at it. Verse six, it says this, they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. So they've gone 110 miles over land. They're making that journey. And I want to comment just briefly on that journey. In verse 13, we read this from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. I say that because one of the things the enemy tries to do is he causes strife at moments where big things are happening. You know, I know this. I know that there are times it could be like, Maybe DFL, or it could be Easter. Anytime there's something really big that's going to happen, Christmas or whatever, and Debbie and I might have conversations that are a little more intense than normal. <laughs> and we'll get a hold of ourselves, and we'll say, now, wait a minute. What's going on, and why is this happening? This is not the way it goes for us. Something's up. We're smarter than this. The enemy is trying to stir the pot. We're not going to let him. And right then, we'll stop and we'll say, you know, Lord, you help us. And we rebuke the, the enemy because he's trying to stir things up. And we're not going to let him. And Lord, we know you've got everything in charge, right? What you got here is you got this internal strife that's happening. I mean, it, it could be for any number of reasons because usually what the enemy does is he supernaturally charges natural reasoning. Or he causes people to think in ways that seems like it's very wise, but it's demonic wisdom. For example, John Mark may have said, you know what? I'm related to Barnabas. Barnabas is a Levite. 
He's been around from the beginning. Who does Paul think he is? Because when you follow this, remember, what happens is it starts out as Barnabas and Saul, but by the time you get to verse 13, it's Paul and his companions. No mention of Barnabas. Sometimes what happens is other people start taking up someone else's offense. You ever seen that happen? We're like, well, you know what? It's not about me, but I just feel bad for them. And, you know, and they're, they feel vindicated because it makes sense to them, but it's demonic wisdom because it's causing dissension. Or it could be that as they were crossing Cyprus, they ran into trouble. Bring the map up here for just a moment. So they're going from there to there. It's 110 miles it's in the middle of this is the Taurus mountain range, which during Roman times had a ton of bandits in it. There were some big rivers, some difficult rivers to cross. There were bandits. It was dangerous. Rome could never get rid of the bandits out of this area. So maybe what you have is, is second Corinthians chapter 11. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers in danger from bandits. A lot of scholars believe this is crossing Cyprus. And John Mark is there, and John Mark's saying, you didn't tell me it's going to be dangerous like this. Come on, guys. And why am I the guy when we're running from the bandits? I'm the one carrying your suitcases. I mean, that's not fair. Or I'm just, why couldn't we have taken the boat? Why do we have to go across land? There's no towns. It's just bandits. We should have gotten on a boat and gone. Do you follow what I'm saying? Chatter, 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 chatter. And Paul, it's just starting to get to him. We know this because when John Mark leaves, Paul's like, he is never going to go with me again, ever. <laughs> and Barnabas is saying, come on, Paul. He's young. He's immature. Give him a break. Paul's like, hey, listen, you know what? You said he could do it, remember? You said he's going to be a real, a real help. Well, he hasn't been a big help, Barnabas. Do you, do you follow what's going on? They're kind of having this talk, and John Mark's having the talk, and Paul is just like, he's just like irritated, and he's saying to Barnabas, you know, I don't mind growing him a little bit. I just didn't think I'd have to part his whiskers to stick the bottle in. I mean, you know, so they're going back and forth, all the stuff people say. It's possible Two, that just the romance of missions wore off for John Mark. You know, it seems like it's going to be really, really romantic to be out on the mission field. I remember sitting across the table from a home builder, and he was telling me, you know, I'm tired of building. People are too picky. I just want to go to the mission field where people appreciate what I do. <laughs> I was like, oh, Jesus. I said, can I just tell you, people are people wherever you go. And they may, they may appreciate what you're doing, but have a whole lot more to say on a lot of other things about you. You know, the mission field is no picnic, but sometimes we think it's going to be better to be somewhere else doing something else. And we've heard the exciting stories and thought about what it might be. And hey, listen, there's a great grace and a wonderful joy and blessing and being in the center of God's will, wherever that is. And if that's the mission field, great. But here's John Mark, and it wasn't like he thought, and so he decided he was out. So they've got this internal friction going on, which is invariably from the enemy. Some of you 
know exactly what I'm talking about. And some of you have yet to figure out that the reason why you're having all this internal friction and strife in your marriage or in different things is because the enemy is opposing you. It doesn't have, we war, our war, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So wake up. It's not your wife that's the problem. It's the devil who's trying to get between you that's the problem. So get your eyes off criticizing her and start, start rebuking the enemy. And it could go the other way. I mean, I'm just saying. Now, verse 6, they traveled through, so there's internal friction and there's external opposition. It's just how it works. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Wow. We got three things that tell us this is going to be special. He's a sorcerer, a Jewish sorcerer. He's a false prophet. And his name is Son of Jesus, which Jesus would have been a familiar name, Joshua, Yeshua, Son of Salvation would be his name. But he's anything but. And, and this is something that you see happen frequently in the book of Acts, which tells us it's something that happens frequently in our service of Christ. Where you see overt satanic opposition to the preaching of the word. So you've got Philip at Samaria and Simon the sorcerer shows up. You've got Paul at Philippi and the slave girl who is a fortune teller, possessed by evil spirits, she shows up. Here you've got this sorcerer trying to stop Paul. Look at it. It says this. His name's Bar-Jesus. He was an attendant of the proconsul, so he's an advisor to the governor of the island, a man by the name of Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. How did he hear about it? Maybe there were signs and wonders happening. Maybe they were preaching and people were talking about it. Or maybe God was using this sorcerer who was talking bad about them to pique the interest of the governor and make him want to hear about him. So maybe the sorcerer is saying, hey, there's some troublemakers coming to town, just want to let you know, and they're preaching this whole gospel thing, and this, they're calling it good news. It's about a, a man who's dead that they say is alive, and it, it, it's stirring up division and trouble, and, and so you're going to want to watch out for them. You don't want anything to do with them in the Governor says, well, I think I'll hear from them. Thank you. Anyway, now they appear before the governor. We read this in verse 8. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted them to hear the, because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. That word turn is going to be translated in verse 10 as perverting. He's going to try to turn. He's going to try to influence the conversation. You know, I want to suggest to you that anytime you and I are trying to share the gospel, one of the reasons why it can be such a challenge is because there's always an alimus somewhere. You know, maybe there are some here today and, and you've not yet decided to become a Christian. 
or you're away from the Lord. You knew him at one time, but, but you're not really walking with him, but you're here today because you're here for whatever reason. You like aspects of church. You're interested in, the, in the, what the Word of God says, but what can happen is you're not moving closer to God because there's an alignment in your life. I mean, some of you have heard the gospel over and over again, and you've not received Christ. Why? That, it's odd. It's strange. The gospel's good news from a good God who wants to do good things in your life. Who doesn't want that? Doesn't that seem strange? I mean, why in the world would you not want to embrace good news from a good God who wants to do good things in your life in a way that will ultimately lead you to eternal life with him and let you taste eternal life now, why would you ever say no unless maybe Satan is blinding your eyes? Unless maybe there's an Elimus who is sarcastically criticizing, well, you know, they say this, but they're only after your money. That's Elimus. Oh, well, you know, they, 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 they talk about this and they talk about that, but you know, blah, 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 sarcasm, humor. Oh, I was in that. I used to be in that. I don't do that anymore because I want to do what I want to do. And it sounds so good and so, so um, independent and so, um, you know, I'm my own person. It's Elimus. Trying to turn your eyes from the Lord and his good work in your life so that you won't make a decision and you keep putting it off until finally it's too late. That's what's happening here. I mean, Sergius Paulus, the gov he's the governor. He sends for Paul and Barnabas. He wants to hear the word of God, but Eliamus is constantly trying to distract the governor. Maybe a running commentary with sarcastic comments. I hope if you're not a Christian, you're not a Lyamus. Keeping other people from believing because you don't want to for whatever reason because your eyes are blinded. I mean, I'm just simply saying there's a spiritual battle there. And honestly, when, when somebody hears the good news and doesn't respond, that is a conundrum to me. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you? God will be better to you than you'd be to yourself. And I'm simply suggesting in that, whether you're watching online or you're watching at Joplin or, or you're watching in this room, wherever you're watching from or hearing this from, that if, if you've heard the gospel over and over again and you've not responded, the issue isn't that you need more time. The issue is the enemy has you right where he wants you. And that ought to be a very startling thing. I'm not saying it for dramatic effect. I'm saying it because it's true and, and you need to consider what's going on. I can speak from the standpoint of having spiritual vision and you're in a place where you're spiritually blind. You can't see the reality of what's happening to you. And the best thing that you could do is to say, I'm done listening to the devil and being influenced by Elimus. I'm going to give my heart to Jesus. And in that moment, you would know the truth and the reality and the power and the joy of what I'm saying. I'm just telling you, you would.
You'd leave, this, you'd leave this place different than you came in Jesus' name for sure you would. So here's Elimus, and he's chattering, you know, as Paul's trying to talk. And Paul's had enough. Verse 9. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. Listen, when you're full of the Holy Spirit, you can stand eye to eye, toe to toe with any demonic, demonized sorcerer and not be afraid. And Paul looks him right in the eye and he says, you're a child of the devil. It's a play on his name. His name is Bar Jesus, son of Jesus, son of salvation. He says, you're not a son of salvation. You're not a son of Jesus. You're a son of Satan. Verse 10, you are full of all kinds of deceit. In other words, you're always baiting the hook. You're always trying to tempt people to turn away from God. You're trying to make it look enticing not to serve God. Well, just think what you can do. Listen, you know, you don't want that Christianity stuff. That'll, you're not going to be able to do a lot of things. You're going to have to give up this, give up that. You know, look at what you get to do because you're not, I mean, why would you want to give that up? Trickery. The idea there is actual harm. You, you are full of all kinds of deceit that harms people, that hurts people. Will you never stop perverting, twisting the right ways of the Lord? Here's Elimus. He's acting like he's righteous, but he's hooking people into occultic thinking and harming them by twisting the truth of God's word. I mean, it's Elimus is the guy who sits at the bar and tells everybody else about the gospel. He's, he's, he can pontificate and do all of that. But, but the problem is, while there is some truth in what he says, he's got the general message wrong. Otherwise, he'd be on his knees repenting. I'm just simply saying, you've got to be very, very careful. There's a lot of deceivers in the world. There's a lot of people who, who twist the word of God and make it say what it, what it isn't saying. And, and that's where my challenge to you is, whether I'm in the pulpit or anybody else is in the pulpit or anybody you're talking to is talking to you about the word of God, be like a, a church we're going to read about in Acts chapter 17 from a town called Berea. It says the Bereans were of a more noble character. They searched the scripture to see if these things be true. Don't just take my word for it. Look at what the Bible says. Do the research. Read it. Think about it. See if it really says that. Watch what Paul does. Verse 11. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind, and for a time, you will be unable to see the light of the sun. And immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. That's an interesting punishment, isn't it? Who do we know who had something similar happen to him? In Acts 9, the Apostle Paul. Paul found that being blind, unable to see for three days, turned out to be a pretty good thing. Because for three days, 
replaying in his mind. It was the last conversation he'd had before he was struck with blindness. Listen, don't view this as harsh. View it as what we might call a severe mercy. Paul's saying, listen, it changed my life to be blind for a few days. Elimus, maybe that'll help you too. Maybe in being blind, you'll recognize what is truly light. You say, did it change him? We don't know. History doesn't tell us. Church tradition doesn't really say much. We don't know what happened to Elimus. We hope it changed him. But we do know what happened to the governor. Look at it. Verse 12. When the proconsul saw what happened, he believed. I mean, listen, the gospel is not only what we say, it's what we do. And if if all we give people are words, we've missed out on much of what the kingdom of God is. You say, where are you getting at? First Corinthians 4.20, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but power. Paul said to the Corinthians, I didn't come to you with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the power of God that your confidence might rest on God, not on men. You know, listen, when people see the miracles and hear the word of God, Luke, that's over 20 times and Luke makes the correlation, they get saved. He believed. He was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Why? Because it had power to it. It made a difference. Listen, let me just say this to you. The testimonies we're hearing every week are not just a sideshow. And they're not just so we can celebrate them in here, though it would be inappropriate not to, let me assure you of that. But the testimonies are so you can go out of here and tell people about the power of God. I want to ask you, do you do that? Do you tell people, do you, do you go to work and say, you will never believe what we heard this Sunday, what God is doing in church, in the lives of people, and then rattle them off? I mean, in order to do that, you'd have to do something to remember them, maybe even, and I would just encourage you to, when the testimonies start getting read off, get your phone out and start saying, edema, healed, vision, healed, dry eyes healed, esophagus healed, just start, just esophagus, vision, edema, and walk out of there. And, and then when you go to work or when you're talking to your neighbor, or when you're talking to your family and you're trying to lead them to the Lord, say, God is moving in power. He's alive. He's real. He did this. He did this. He did this. He did this. And he loves you and he wants you to know him. And then, praise God, their faith built up by what you've said. Maybe you pray for them and their situation, and they see God deliver them and save them. I mean, that's, that's the way it's designed to work. It's, it's what Jesus said and what he did, what he began to do and what 
he began to say, Acts chapter 1. So share the testimonies, lead people to Christ. And when you're saying all this, what are you going to do with it? I mean, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I mean, how do you explain this? Week after week after week, healing after healing after healing after healing. I mean, these people are not making it up. God is healing them. God is touching them. God is visiting this place because God is real. And his power testifies to the truth of his message. And his message is, unless you receive Christ as your Savior, you'll die in your sin and eternally perish. And his message is, he loves you so much. He wants to do good in your life if you'll simply open your heart to him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I pray you believe.